in the second century, there's a guy named Marcion who became significantly influential in Asia Minor. Marcion taught that the Old Testament and the New Testament didn't gel together. And his thinking, they were out of sync with one another. And in fact, they represented two very different portrayals of God. And as a result, Marcion made a new Bible. What he did was he uh, took the Bible, he took out the Old Testament. And he only had one gospel. It was an uh, an edited version of Luke. And then he took only 10 of Paul's letters and edited those as well. And those made it into his new Bible. Marcion was excommunicated as a heretic. But as uh, Kent Hughes points out, there was a revival of his teaching in the 19th century with liberalism. Okay, Uh, And in fact, the father of liberalism, Friedrich Schleiermacher, he said that the Old Testament has a place in the Christian heritage only by virtue of its connections with Christianity. He felt that it should be no more than an appendix of historical interest. That's all he believed concerning the Old Testament. This rejection of the Old Testament as authoritative, inspired scripture, it still exists today. This heresy still exists today. Many still reject the books of Genesis to Malachi from the biblical canon. In light of this heresy, let's be honest with ourselves just for a minute. All of us, or most of us in this room, uh, believe that the Old Testament is inspired by God and authoritative for our lives. But functionally, we treat it as if it isn't sometimes. We often spend more time reading and studying the New Testament than the Old Testament. And when we do read the Old Testament, it's a lot of the Psalms and the Proverbs because they speak to us more. We don't understand sometimes the relevance of many of the laws and the prophecies for our lives. So we rush through them in the hopes that we will encounter a story that we remember from Sunday school as a kid, something that's familiar and engaging. We tell ourselves that because we're not under the old covenant anymore and the old covenant was what Israel was under in the Old Testament and Jesus has established a new covenant that we don't have as much need to study the Old Testament. So we tend to stick with what we know. And now perhaps there are some of us in this room that spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament because you love narrative. You love stories. And there's lots of stories in the Old Testament. In fact, two-thirds of the Old Testament is narrative. However, you may treat these stories as tales of morality like Aesop's fables with a spiritual twist. And so you get a lot of you know, lessons about trusting God and a lot of lessons about uh, knowing that God is with us and a lot of lessons about humility. And that's good, but it does miss the big picture. As we'll see in our text for this morning, whether you reject the Old Testament altogether or functionally you avoid it, 
you'll see that the Old Testament was extremely, extremely important to Jesus. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 for our text this morning. Still going along in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to the words of Jesus. Follow along as I read. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And last week, we looked at what it means to be salt and light in the world. That is, from verses 13 through 16, um, what it means to live out the Beatitudes, not only among each other, not only among Christians, but living out the Beatitudes from verses 3 through 12 in the world, among the unbelievers. That's what it means to be salt and light in the world. In our text this morning, Jesus shifts topics to begin a large section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus portrays what a righteous life looks like, what a righteous life consists of. So before jumping into a description of a righteous life, Jesus sees it as necessary to tell his audience where he stands when it comes to what had been their standard for centuries what we now know as the Old Testament. Was Jesus bringing some new teaching to them that really had nothing to do with everything that they had known? Was Jesus overturning the teachings and the requirements of the Old Testament? What does Jesus say about the Old Testament? He says the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. He says the Old Testament is permanent. And he says the Old Testament is still relevant for us today. Those are our three points. So if you're taking notes, just real quick, I'll repeat those again. Uh, The Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. The Old Testament is permanent. And the Old Testament is still relevant for us today. That's where we're going. Okay, so let's look at our first point. The Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus says that he did not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. Now, in making reference to the law and the prophets, uh, he is making reference to the entire Old Testament, not just the first five books of the Old Testament and the last 17 books of the Old Testament, the prophets. Uh, No, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament here. Now, to the people that Jesus is preaching to on the side of this mountain, it may very well have seemed like Jesus was abolishing the Old Testament because they understood it differently than God intended it to be understood. So it could have seemed to them like he is abolishing it because they didn't understand it the way that he was explaining it. Their understanding of the Old Testament, especially the Mosaic law, had been distorted by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. They had distorted the teaching of the Old Testament for the people that Jesus was teaching, preaching to. 
that the scribes and the Pharisees had been teaching the people that the law was merely external, uh, to be obeyed outwardly, not inwardly when it comes to motives, intentions, and thoughts, and attitudes. They thought it was merely external. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, looking clean on the outside, but inside dead. The scribes and Pharisees also avoided what Jesus called the weightier matters of the law. Things like mercy and justice, okay? They avoided mercy and justice, but they made sure when they tithed, they tithed down to the very smallest plants in their garden. They tithed their mint and their dill and their cumin, Jesus said in Matthew 23. But they avoid things like mercy and justice. So they avoided the weightier matters of the law for ones that didn't matter as much. The Pharisees also looked to themselves for the righteousness that they needed to justify themselves before God. They looked to themselves for that righteousness, not outward to God. In Luke 18, 11 and 12, we know the story, many of us, uh, the Pharisee in the temple is praying and he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Instead of looking to God or to Jesus for the righteousness that uh, is needed to stand before God, he desperately needs that, but looks elsewhere to himself. He's not looking to God, he's looking to himself, and he's saying, I, 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 I. They looked to themselves for the righteousness that they needed instead of to God. We can see then how it would probably occur to the people that Jesus is preaching to that he might be abolishing the law because he was saying something that was quite different from what they had been taught. However, Jesus and his preaching doesn't reflect a replacement of the Old Testament, but rather a fulfillment of the Old Testament that reflected how God had always intended it to be interpreted. And we can look to the Gospels. We can study the Gospels and look at everything Jesus is saying in the Gospels, and we can see that that Jesus treated the Old Testament as Holy Scripture because he quotes it repeatedly. He alludes to it. He interprets it. We can see that the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. It was his Bible But he's more than just a great rabbi, one who teaches the law. He's more than just a great prophet. He is the God-man who fulfilled the Old Testament. In him, we find its ultimate meaning. So what does it mean then? What, what, What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament? After studying this subject this week, I can, with confidence, I can say seminary courses could be spent on this subject alone. Seminary courses could be spent answering this question, how did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? Or in what way did he fulfill the Old Testament? So I'm going to try to break it down a little bit this morning to help us out in understanding how it was that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. Now, when it comes to the Mosaic law in the Old Testament that was given to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, we understand that there are different kinds of laws within this law different kinds of laws within this law. Uh, There are three categories that can help us organize these laws a bit. But let me say, uh, 
Not every law fits nice and neatly into each of these categories. There is some overlap, uh, but they're going, it's going to help us in terms of explaining things this morning to uh, talk about these laws that have different characteristics and what categories they fit into. There are three categories I want to talk about this morning. Um, first of all, uh, there is the moral, the moral law that we find in the Old Testament. These are the kind of laws we find in the Ten Commandments, right? Have no other gods before me. Do not lie, do not steal, do not commit adultery. Those kinds of laws. The laws which represent the morality that we should still be pursuing today, right? Um, Jesus fulfilled these with his perfect life. The, the, the moral law he fulfilled with his perfect life. You know, Galatians 4.4 4 says that Jesus was born under the law. I mean, he was born subject to the law, just as we are subject to the law. He was born under it. But unlike us, he was absolutely perfect in fulfilling it. Absolutely perfect in morality without sin. And listen to what Hebrews 7.26 says. This is awesome. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. That's Jesus. Perfect. He fulfilled the moral law with his perfect life. Now, I want to read something to you from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Some of you may have the Jesus Storybook Bible. In fact, we've got copies in our bookstore. Um, and we don't make any money on that. It's just going to bless you to have one of these. Okay, Even if you don't have kids, read it. I'm serious. I read this to my son. I've read it three times. Uh, we're, go- we're actually on our third time through it with Peter. And man, it, it challenges me. And I learn from this kid's Bible. Okay, um, it, It's something that brings together the full scope of the scriptures and unfolds the entire plan of God's redemption but it starts in the Old Testament and goes through the New Testament. It shows how it's all connected. Okay, and so I just want to, in, in terms of Jesus fulfilling the moral law, let me read a portion of this for you. I commend it to you as well. It says, God called Moses up to the mountain. The great mountain shook. A thick cloud fell. Thunder roared. Lightning crackled. And God gave Moses 10 rules called commandments. I want you to love me more than anything else in all the world and know that I love you too, God told them. That's the most important thing of all. God gave them other rules like don't make yourselves pretend gods. Don't kill people or steal or lie. The rules showed God's people how to live and how to be close to him and how to be happy. They showed how life worked best. God promises to always look after you, Moses said. Will you love him and keep these rules? We can do it. Yes, we promise. But they were wrong. They couldn't do it. No matter how hard they tried, they could never keep God's rules all the time. God knew they couldn't, and he wanted them to know it too. Only one person could keep all the rules. And many years later, God would send him to stand in their place and be perfect for them because the rules couldn't save them. Only God could save them. That represents Jesus' fulfillment of the moral law. Jesus was perfect for us. We have a sinful nature. We were born into sin. There's no way we can keep the moral law. We can't do it. It's impossible for us. But Jesus, subject to the same law we were subject to, when he walked this earth, he fulfilled that law perfectly. 
he fulfilled it perfectly. And as Jesus, um, as is described of Jesus in Hebrews chapter four, he was tempted in all things just as we are, yet he was without sin, perfect lamb of God. But you know, this life, this perfect life, let me, let me bridge a gap for you here. This life means nothing to us without the cross. His perfect life, his fulfilling of the law perfectly means nothing to us if it were not for his death and resurrection. Because through his death and resurrection, we get that righteousness that he achieved by living perfectly. We get that imputed to us. God gives that to us, to our account. So we stand righteous before him in his sight. So we cannot, we cannot separate this fulfillment of the moral law from the cross and what he achieved there. What about the civil laws? We had talked about moral laws, now civil laws or judicial laws. These are laws concerning agriculture we see in the Old Testament, settlement of disputes, diet, cleanliness, and dress. How did Jesus fulfill these laws? They were laws given to the people of Israel in order to separate them from the pagan nations that surrounded Israel. These laws were meant to distinguish them from the other nations that were against God, rebelling against him. So why can, or how can we say that Jesus fulfilled these? Well, we don't, we don't obey these laws anymore, do we? I mean, is there anybody who still stones their obstinate children in this room? Or stones uh, adulterers? We don't. We don't do that here, okay? Let me assure you, we don't do that at Calvary Bible Church, all right? So why not? Why not? Because Jesus' death marked the pinnacle in Israel's rejection of God. Jesus' death marked the pinnacle of Israel's rejection of God in, in himself, Jesus. And so Jesus, with his death and resurrection... That there comes an interruption in God's dealings with Israel as a nation. Okay? So when Jesus died and he rose again, there started an interruption. God no longer deals with Israel as a chosen nation. We, now, the church, are God's chosen people. And yes, they will be restored. Israel will be restored. Paul makes that clear in Romans. One day they will be restored. But right now, we, the church, are God's people. So you don't have to come to me and say, hey, listen, I know there's this law I, I was doing in my quiet time, and I came across this law that says, hey, hey uh, you know, here's what I need to do if my ox gores my neighbor's ox. Do I need to buy an ox? Because I don't have an ox. Do I need an ox in order to obey this commandment? No. You don't have to come and ask me that because the interruption in God's dealings with people, uh, in God's dealings with Israel as a chosen people, as a nation, that interruption has begun. So he fulfilled those in that way. What about the ceremonial laws? Those, those laws uh, that are involved with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that we, we find in the books like Le- Leviticus. The ones that say how to sacrifice and when to sacrifice and, and where to sacrifice and what to sacrifice. Those laws. How did Jesus fulfill those? Israel was commanded to sacrifice for the covering of their sins. That's why they were commanded to sacrifice. They made these sacrifices year after year through a priest who would enter into what it was called the Holy of Holies that represented God's presence. They went into the Holy of Holies, made the sacrifice 
for the people to God. The Holy of Holies, we read about in uh, Matthew 27, 51, the, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies is torn in two in this chapter. When Jesus dies on the cross, the veil is torn in two. <clears throat> in Hebrews seven twenty seven, um, the author says Jesus is a high priest who does not daily, does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices for uh, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He's not like those high priests that had to continually offer sacrifices both for themselves and the people. He is the once for all sacrifice. The great high priest who gave his life. He was the great high priest and he was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice so that no other sacrifices ever have to be given. Again, because he was the perfect lamb of God. Now, in order to demonstrate this, I want to to read a quote to you um, from John MacArthur. He kind of uh, contrasts Aaron and Jesus Christ. Aaron was the first and foremost high priest in the old covenant. And uh, he, uh, John MacArthur spent some time contrasting Aaron with Jesus Christ just to show how Christ fulfilled these ceremonial laws. Listen to this. Aaron was the first and foremost high priest of the old covenant, but he could not compare with the great high priest of the new covenant. Aaron entered the earthly tabernacle, but Christ entered the heavenly. Aaron entered once a year, Christ once for all time. Aaron entered beyond the veil. Christ tore the veil in two. Aaron offered many sacrifices. Christ only one. Aaron sacrificed for his own sin. Christ only for the sins of others. Aaron offered the the blood of bulls. Christ his own blood. Aaron was a temporary priest. Christ is an eternal one. Aaron was fallible. Christ infallible. Aaron was changeable. Christ unchangeable. Aaron was continual. Christ is final. Aaron's sacrifice was imperfect. Christ's was perfect. Aaron's priesthood was insufficient. Christ is all sufficient. When the veil in the temple was torn in two, that represented the fact that sacrifices were no longer needed. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. In the same vein as MacArthur, Sinclair Ferguson says, by Jesus' death, certain elements in God's law had been fulfilled in order to be abolished. So what he's saying here is that these sacrifices were meant to point forward to Christ's great sacrifice. They never had the power to cleanse. They never never had the power to cleanse the people from their sins. They were always pointing forward to the great sacrifice, the only sacrifice that had the power to cleanse, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so these were fulfilled, and Christ fulfilled these laws in order to abolish them because he himself was the perfect sacrifice. What about other? What about the other elements of the Old Testament? In which, in what ways did Christ fulfill these? Well, what about the, the the prophecies? Many prophecies Christ fulfilled in the Old Testament. Some of them um, early on in the Old Testament were, were more general. Genesis three fifteen says the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Speaking of Jesus uh, crushing or bruising the he- the head of Satan, right? Defeating him, triumphing over him. And, um, Genesis 12 says that God, uh, God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, and you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
right? Speaking of the fact that through Abraham's lineage, Christ will come. And through Christ, uh, all p- people from all, of, all tribes, tongues, nations, and people groups will be saved. And some of the prophecies that Christ fulfills in the Old Testament, um, those were more specific the closer you get to the New Testament. Isaiah 7, the virgin birth. Micah 5, the birthplace of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, the specifics of Jesus' death and the atonement of our sins. There are prophecies in Old Testament narrative and the prophets and even the Psalms that Christ fulfills. But there are also types, what we call types that Jesus fulfilled. Types in the Old Testament. Let me give you a definition of what a type is. He... uh, fulfills types, and types are representative figures, institutions, or events that foreshadow Jesus. They are representative figures, institutions, or events that foreshadow Jesus. So that definition, Adam was a type of Christ, right? Uh, He was our first representative, and Romans 5 says that Christ is our second representative. He was everything that Adam should have been for us. In in the sense of being a human representative, the kings, what about the kings? When you you read the book of 1 Kings, how is that prefiguring or foreshadowing Christ? Well, he's the king of kings, right? He's the king of kings. Uh, It prefigures him as our king of kings. And the prophets foreshadowed Jesus in that they brought the word of the Lord to the people by saying what? What What did they say? Thus saith the Lord, right? Thus says the Lord. That's how they told the people what God was saying. Thus says the Lord. But what did Jesus say? He said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He said, truly, truly, I say to you. So they, show, they pointed forward to the true prophet, the word of God himself, Jesus. What about the temple? The temple foreshadows Christ because it represented the presence of God among the people. Jesus was God among the people right? Um, Boaz in the book of Ruth redeemed Ruth and foreshadowed Jesus as our redeemer, right? Uh, The Passover foreshadowed Jesus because death passed over the house where the the blood of the spotless lamb was uh, smeared over the doorpost. In the same way, the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, applied to us as death passed right over it. We see, and this, this is, I mean, think of Hosea. He marries a prostitute and chases after her in love in the same way that Jesus Christ chased after us, the church. We're, I mean, this is just scratching the surface, people. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There's much more. But now we need to ask the question, why does this matter? Why does it matter? And what do we need to do with this knowledge? Let me give you three answers to that question. In terms of application, what do we do with this? Why does it matter? Three answers to that question. Three applications. Okay, first, first of all, why does this matter? It gives more validity to Jesus. This, the fact that, that Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament, it gives more validity to Jesus. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, then he wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a good prophet. He wasn't just a moral icon for the world, which is what our country treats him as most often. He's not just a notable 
historical figure who had a notable following. That's, he's not just that if he fulfilled the Old Testament. If he fulfilled the Old Testament, that means that Jesus is the center of a plan. A center of a plan that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that God is unfolding throughout history. He started that plan before time began. And in the Old Testament, he's, he's unfolding that plan with great precision. Even, I mean, we're talking about thousands of years before Jesus even came on the scene in human form and God's unfolding. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's, he's the center. Jesus is the center of that plan. Whenever we want to, whenever we want to determine the validity of something, what do we do? We look to its history, don't we? We look to its history. So you ask yourself, um, I want to, I need a new doctor. I got to go find a new doctor. So you ask yourself the question, okay, where did this guy go to school? Right? I, you know, was it, did he get his degree off the internet? You know, and just, was it a certificate that they, he printed out on his computer? I mean, what, what let's see, what, what's his history in terms of practice? How long has he been practicing? How long? Uh, do I know people who he has treated before in the past who can tell me about uh, how skilled he is, what his bedside manner is like, right? What about uh, the fact, maybe you want to open a money market account and you're, you want to give your money to this money market account. You want to make an investment in a financial institution. What do you do? What's their track record, right? Uh, and how old is this company? Now, wh- what are their beginnings? How did they get to where they are? See if you can trust this, this financial institution to take good care of your money. We look at its history. If we want to know the validity of the trustworthiness of something, we look at its history. In the same way, we look to the history of Christ. And you know what? <laughs> You're right. His earthly life was 33 years. But if you look in the Old Testament, you see the, this wealth of credibility. Everything pointing to him thousands of years before, but they're pointing to him. It's, uh, you know, you think, what if you were one of these people that's sitting on the, on the side of this mountain listening to Jesus preach? And you, you're thinking, should I trust this 30-year-old guy from Nazareth whose dad is a carpenter? Well, if you're hearing him say that he's come to fulfill the Old Testament, then that's going to shoot you back into the Old Testament. It's going to shoot you back into history to look for all of the credibility that goes far beyond a 30-year life. All the way back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So it gives validity to Jesus. He's not just a good teacher, prophet, or historical icon. No, he's not. He is God. He's the God-man. He's the center of God's plan of redemption. Number two, in terms of answering the question, why is this important? It gives validity, validity to the Bible as well. This gives validity to the Bible. If what Jesus is saying is true, and he came to fulfill the Old Testament, then the Bible is unlike any other book that has ever been written ever. Why? Why? Because if what he says is true, then you've got guys, men, men of God, who are writing a who are writing over a 1,500-year period, and they're writing about someone they've never met, someone they've never walked with, someone they've never sat, whose, whose feet they never sat at and listened to him teach personally. 
They had never met him, but they're writing about him. That says, and I don't care who you are, that says supernatural origin, doesn't it? So it gives validity to the Bible. This is not just a, a collection of poems from you know, poets in the 18th century. You know what I'm saying? Where they just collected them, had nothing in common with one another. They just put it in some kind of collection of poems. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about all these people writing, yes, different genres of literature, different, and you know, they had different jobs. They were different. They lived in different points in history, but they're all writing about the same person. They're all writing about Christ, even though they hadn't met him. So much, so much different. Unlike any other book that's ever been written because God is the author. He's pulling together all of these things. He's inspiring all of these people to write about his son. Number three, it makes the Bible come alive. It makes the Bible come alive in places where it once seemed so dreary and pointless. It makes the Bible come alive. Now, when we were kids, we got a lot of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, there's lots of narrative and there's lots of story and kids like stories. And stories are entertaining so you get a lot of the Old Testament when you're in Sunday school, okay? And uh, you get a lot of the flanograph. Is that what they call it? The flanograph, something like that? Um, which is just you know, the, the height of technology these days. I mean, um, then we become adults and we transition over to the New Testament because the New Testament is full of propositional truth and we can understand it now. Well, this is problematic. It's problematic because in doing so, Uh, We miss the impact of the overarching story of the entire word of God when we do this. Um, Plus, let let me just speak to this for a second here. When the kids are getting the Old Testament stories, sometimes in Sunday school and and on Veggie Tales, uh, they're getting a lot of morality lessons, but very little Christology. A lot of morality lessons, but, but... Hardly any Christology in the Old Testament. Now listen, I don't want to bash Veggie Tales. I like Veggie Tales. I think I, I watched I watched one with my son the other day, and we used it as a kind of a springboard to talk about about God. You know, it was it was a it was a lesson that we could teach to a three year old. I'm not I don't want to completely you know uh, you know back the truck up on Veggie Tales, but let me say this: if we are just uh, if, if we are just um, using veggie tales as these morality lessons, only as morality lessons, then I think what we're doing, what, what, what we could be doing, what we're in danger of doing is helping our kids become little Pharisees in the sense that they feel comfortable adhering to an outward standard of morality without the life-giving message of the cross. And so... If we want to use that, if we want to tell these stories, yeah, it's good that we, we need to learn lessons about trusting God and God's with us and humility and all those lessons. But let's, let's take that and go the next step. How does it point to Jesus? How does this prefigure Jesus? Let me show you how it, I mean, I've never come across a, a kid's Bible or a kid's book that does it like this. I've never, I've never encountered this. In fact, I grew up in church. Uh, my, my whole life, I, we were at church every Sunday, and I did not understand the Old Testament. I was confused by the Old Testament until I was 22 years old. I did not get the whole uh, overarching story of the Bible until then. Our kids, don't, let's not let our kids get to the point 
where they think the Old Testament is just a bunch of fables, morality tales like Aesop's fable, but they have a little spiritual twist and you, you throw God in there. Listen, I don't hear the name Jesus very often in Veggie Tales. And we need to use it to point them to Jesus. If we're going to use them, let's use them to point our kids to Jesus. If we go in the Old Testament, we see gospel everywhere. I mean, this, this should change the way that we read the scriptures. It should, it should excite us when we go to the Old Testament now because there's gospel everywhere. Okay, I, I just want to give you a couple examples of this. All right. Um, Psalm 49, 7 and 8 says this. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. That should say gospel to you. All right, when you read that, you should be thinking the price of redeeming someone's soul is so costly that no man can do it. Therefore, God must do it. And he did by sending his son. What about Job? Is there any gospel in Job? There is. Check this out. Uh, Job 9, 32 and 33, Job says, for God is not a man as I am that I may answer that we may go to court together. Listen to this. There is no arbitrator between us who may lay his hand upon us both. Now, Job understands God to be a holy God. And as C.J. Mahaney points out, um, Job fears that the suffering that he's experiencing is God's judgment being poured out on him. Okay, so, you know, in his distress, he cries out these words. He wishes for a mediator. He's wishing for a mediator, someone to come in between him and a holy God, a suffering man and a holy God, and mediate and make peace between the two parties. That's what he's wishing for. When we read this, we should be thanking Jesus because 1 Timothy 2.5 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is the mediator. These are just examples There's so much more in the Old Testament, but it should make uh, the scriptures come alive again. You don't have to look in the Old Testament and say, this has nothing to do with me. Yes, it does because it points to Christ and Christ has everything to do with you. So it makes our Bible reading, our Old Testament reading, a lot more exciting. Now, that was just point one in our three points. But these two are smaller, I promise. Okay, so that was the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. The next point is the Old Testament is permanent. The Old Testament is permanent. We call the first 39 books of the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, we call the th- first 39 books of the Bible the Old Testament because it is older and because it deals with Israel under the Old Covenant. But the name Old Testament is not inspired. It's not inspired. The name Old Testament makes it sound as if these books are outdated and unimportant. And we print the New Testament without the Old Testament for evangelistic purposes, don't we? And uh, we do so unwittingly and communicate that the Old Testament is scripture that we don't need to spend too much time studying or digesting. Here's what Jesus says in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not even the smallest letter or 
the smallest stroke that can distinguish a letter from a letter will pass away from the Old Testament until all of it is accomplished. From where we are here in Matthew chapter 5, this means that Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resur- resurrection, and as well as his second coming and all the things that are associated with the end times, all those things must be fulfilled and will be fulfilled. And the word of God, the Old Testament, will not pass away. It's content- it continues to live on because its author is alive and well and will be alive and well. This means that all the people who view the Bible as culturally regressive or barbaric, simplistic, outdated, all those people think those things, according to Jesus, they're wrong. They're wrong. Uh, There is a load of comfort in this church. The the fact that this is not going to be outdated, that the Bible, the Old Testament is not going to be outdated. Loads of comfort here. Why? Because we live in a world where everything we have is outdated. It's like we have to, we have to buy a new computer every three years. We've got to buy a new computer. Our, our electronic devices, we, we, have the, we feel this pressure, this constant pressure to get, get new, the updated version, the next version of it. What about fashion trends? They change so quickly. Okay, we, we, got, we feel the pressure to buy new clothes. Okay, so, so since when did it become uncool to wear socks with sandals? When did this happen? Okay, but it is... What about college students? What, what about you? college students? If there's any college students in here, you know what I'm talking about. I, I felt this when I was in college. You have to buy a new edition of your book every other year. They come out with a new edition. It's like the, the ninth printing. You know, it's got maybe one new chapter, but your professor wants you to buy the new copy of it. So you got to go buy the updated version of your textbook and spend like $100 on a biology textbook when you could go buy the used version for like 15 or 20 bucks. And so everything around us needs to be updated. We feel the the need to buy, 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 update, update, update. But we should feel rest when we open up our Bibles. We should should get to our Bibles and open them up and exhale because we, we don't have to worry about having to update this thing. This, this wonderful, glorious truth. We don't have to worry about that. It is continuing to be true and will always continue to be true for you and for me. Now, let me tell you this. Let's just think about this just for a second. Everything else is coming out. I mean, even newspapers. They say that newspapers are on their way out because uh, you know, by, by the time you get the newspaper, um, you know, it can't catch up with the real-time news that's on the web, okay? So even the newspaper, you know, they say the newspapers are, are being outdated now, okay? In a world where everything needs to be updated, this, listen to this, there, there's not going to be a Bible 2.0. There's not going to be a Bible 2.0. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. You can rest. You can open up the Bible and say, ah, oh, this is as true now as it was 2,000 years ago. That's a beautiful, relaxing, relieving thing. The Old Testament is permanent. Our last point. The Old Testament is still relevant for us today. The Old Testament is still relevant for us today. It may sound, this may sound similar to our last point, but it takes the last point to another level. Um, In verses 19 and 20, Jesus demonstrates that the Old Testament is still useful, relevant, and authoritative for us today. Paul said, 
all scripture is inspired by God and profitable so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And he was, when he wrote that, he was thinking of the Old Testament, right? And, um, and, he, and he also says, uh, Jesus, or I'm sorry, Jesus is saying here in this text, if you look at verse 19, he's saying, you better not disregard or soften any of the commandments in the Old Testament. Don't disregard or soften or, or loosen any of the commandments in the Old Testament, or else you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And he says, instead, you ought to be keeping the law and teaching others the law and teaching others to keep the law as well, and then you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He is saying we need to continue to keep it. It's, it is authoritative for us today. You need to keep the law. You need to keep the commandments in the Old Testament. You do. Now, understand we already talked about how some of those have been fulfilled, okay? Some of those we, we don't uh, specifically uh, apply to our lives because they've been fulfilled. But there are principles, theological principles you can derive from those laws that you can put to work in your life, okay? The Old Testament continues to be relevant to us. The New, Te- the New Testament makes it clear that um, it is... It is impossible for us to keep the law. Understand that, right? It's impossible for us to keep the law in terms of uh, achieving righteousness for ourselves in order to be saved. When Jesus says here that our righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees, right? He says, if, if we're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, in verse 20, he says that our righteousness must surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, the righteousness of the Pharisees, right? Well, but we can't, we can't keep the law. We've already talked about that. We're to, we're to obey the law. We're, we're to, to obey the commandments in the Old Testament, but we can't keep them fully. We, can't, we cannot uh, keep them precisely. So what is, he, what is Jesus getting at here? How is our righteousness going to surpass that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees if we cannot keep the law in, in and of ourselves? We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. We have a sinful nature, in fact. What he, here's what he's getting at. Here's what he's getting at. The law, according to Paul, is meant to expose the fact that we have no righteousness and point us to the one who does. Here's what, here's what Paul says in Galatians 3.24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Okay? The, the law is meant to expose the fact that we have no righteousness in and of ourselves and point us to the one who does have the righteousness that we so desperately need. So, Jesus, like we said earlier, was perfect for us. He obeyed the law for us. And when he died on the cross, he imputed that righteousness to us for those of us who believe. So what, what does he mean then? How does our righteousness then surpass that of the Pharisees? It means that the Pharisees, they were adhering to the law outwardly, externally. Now we have real, true righteousness that has been obeyed fully, and it's from Christ, and it's been given to us. It's been imputed to us so that we stand before God righteous. So what Jesus is saying here is that he has provided, we need his righteousness, first of all, but here's what happens. His righteousness, that real righteousness, enables us to pursue righteousness through obeying the law. Not in the sense that we're obeying the law in order to, um, 
you know, justify ourselves or be uh, in God's favor. We, we don't do that. Jesus Christ already died. He already fulfilled the law and he already died uh, that perfect death for us. But now he's enabled us through his death and resurrection to obey the law. But we, we, don't, we don't obey it now in order to earn salvation. We ne- it was never meant to be the case. What we do now is we obey the law as an expression of our faith in Christ. We obey the law as an expression of worship. We, we obey the law to serve him. And so our righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees because it's a real righteousness that Jesus has imputed to us. But at the same time, we now are set on course of pursuing righteousness through obeying the law. And that is a real righteousness as well because we are enabled to do it from the inside out. Now, let me say this. Let me read a quote to you. Um, This is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here's what he says about this in terms of the relevance, the continued relevance of the law in the Old Testament. The whole purpose of grace, in a sense, is just to enable us to keep the law. Therefore, if your so-called grace does not make you keep the law, you have not received grace. Christ said in John 14, 21, it is he who has my commandments and keeps them. That is the one who loves me. He is the one who loves me. The one who has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he's the one who loves me. So it's not that we obey the law to earn salvation. We can't earn salvation. Jesus has given us salvation. He is righteous for us. He was perfect for us. But now grace through Jesus Christ has enabled us to obey the law and please God in doing so. So let me ask you this, as we're closing here, has grace made you complacent in your faith? Has, has your grace made you complacent in your faith or lazy in your faith or indifferent in your faith, comfortable in your faith? Or has grace, real grace, God-given grace, has it lit a fire underneath you so that you are working to obey Jesus' commandments? Uh, has your grace put you in the race so that you're, you're running it with focus and vigor? Or are you back at the starting line making sure your uniform looks right? God's grace puts shoes on your feet, gets you out in the lane, and gets your legs pumping. That's what God's grace does. Does the grace that you claim to have does it make you obey the law of God for him? Because if it doesn't, we have to question whether we have grace at all. Because God's grace works. It works in our lives to enable us to obey God and to please him with our lives. Here's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. I'm sorry, 5.15. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Paul says, Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So we could sum that up by saying Jesus died so we would no longer live for us, but for him. How do we do that? We do that by obeying the commandments he's given us in scripture. We do we do that by obeying the law. It still has authoritative presence in our lives. We should still pursue it. We are a people that um, Christ has died in order to make holy. 
right? So that we would, we would be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That's one of the reasons why he died for us. So we seek to grow. We seek to pursue holiness. We seek a righteous life by obeying the law. A true righteousness from the inside out. Because really what we're doing, because in God's sight, we're already righteous because of Jesus, right? But now we're becoming who we already are. Isn't that wonderful? We're becoming who we are. In this Christian life, our sanctification, we're saved. We're becoming who we already are in God's sight. We're becoming righteous. We're becoming holy. We do that by obeying the law. Now, Jesus has given us some very forceful reasons why his Bible, the Old Testament, should be our Bible too. And not just in the sense that you're your Old Testament is bound to the New Testament and the Bible that you carry to church every Sunday. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, is, is Jesus' Bible, your Bible, in the sense that you believe it, you study it, you love it, and you live it. Is Jesus' Bible your Bible too? Not, maybe you're not someone like Marcion who claims the Old Testament you know, is, is not God's word. It's not inspired. It's not authoritative. Maybe you're not that person, but do you avoid it functionally in the way that you interact with it? Do you, do you think that it's not as important? Does it not hold authority in your life? You may not say it's not God's word, but if I was to look at your life, if you were, to able, if you were able to see things clearly, would that be true? Would you be treating old te- the Old Testament as, as David did? I mean, you read the Psalms and David loved the Old Testament. He was talking about the law when he said it's sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. That was, that was David talking about the law. Is that us? Do we, we say that about the Old Testament? Are, are we functionally people who don't believe it's authoritative, even though we say it is God's word? I hope not. And I hope that today, We've been inspired. I know I have this week in studying inspired to spend more time in Jesus' Bible. I hope that you'll do this. I hope you'll do that this week, and I hope it will bless your quiet times in the Old Testament. I hope that the Old Testament will come alive again. Let's pray. God, thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you that it's a big part of the plan of redemption that you have ordained since before time began. Help us to esteem it higher than we do. Help us to spend more time studying it. Help us to spend more time seeking to understand it and seeing its place in the unity of the Bible. I pray, Lord God, it would make us holier people because of it. Do this, Lord God, we pray because we need you and because you are worthy and because you have saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name.